So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Charlie and Callie Thornton, our, our uh, resident medical experts, uh, Charlie, I don't know if you guys know, is a nurse practitioner and um, Callie is a nurse and they joined with the team and did a medical missions trip to Guatemala and just wanted to give him a chance to say a couple things about it. Yeah, give it to him. Well, we, <clears throat> we appreciate all the prayers for getting over there and getting back. Um, I will say, if you've never been on a mission trip or out of this country and you want to be humbled and thankful for what you have, you really need to do that. Yeah. Um, I, got, I had some pictures that I put up on the thing, so it just helped me talk about it a little bit, reminded me of what we did. We were gone for seven days. We went with um, <clears throat> a place called, or through a place called uh, Buena Vista Ministerios. Uh, Danny and Kim Lopez, they're from Falkville. Uh, they moved to Guatemala seven years ago. I believe their sponsor church is Fairview Church of God okay. in Falkville. Um, they have set up in, in a place called San Pedro, Los Hertes, they have a medical, I'm sorry, not a medical, uh, feeding center for the villages and a tutoring center as well. Uh, and they see um, several hundred kids a day uh, come through for the feeding center. Sometimes it's the only food those kids get. And they've never had a medical mission trip come, or a medical team, I should say. <clears throat> so they asked us to come. So 14 of us went uh, from the Hartzell office, community urgent care. Uh, we were there seven days. We saw over 1,100 people. Um, this was, uh, we were averaging about 300 a day. This was uh, just a lady that was dressed real nice. A lot of the places we went were very traditional. Uh, Mayan culture, uh, Catholic. Uh, women do majority of the work over there. Um, but and then they're treated like second-rate citizens, so it was kind of weird. Uh, this lady was walking down the street. This, this was day one, and I don't know if you, how well y'all can see the buildings in the back, but it's block and mortar, uh, like concrete block and mortar. That's where we, and this was day one, and they were lined up down the street, which is weird because we were literally on top of a hill about what felt like 700 feet if you walked up it with all our gear. Um, but this was day one. We saw uh, several, several hundred this day. <clears throat> Mostly kids. I saw two de two two males that day, uh, one young male and one old guy in a walker. There was a lady that was brought in, who I'm pretty sure his foot was dying, rotting off, and these two ladies carried her in a chair no bigger than what y'all are sitting in, up this hill, to us, and would not let us carry her down the hill. They they had it like they would not let us get um assist them it's just the kind of the way it was um go to the next slide so this um this place is called the tabitha house um and it was in guatemala city which is where we flew into um i had tyler put this up here and the facebook live streams going but we're not able to show this because these kids literally live in the city dump in guatemala um, and the reason we can't show their faces is due to the black market for children in Guatemala. Wow. Um, a lot of these kids, brothers, sisters, and some of these kids will probably end up being kidnapped, sold through Mexico for 
either organ harvesting. And I'm just gonna, you can figure out what that is. Um, or they'll be sold to um, organizations to, uh, for adoption. Um, a lot of these kids don't exist to the government. They're, they were born in the dump, they weren't taken to the hospital, there's no record of them being existing. That's why it's um, very um, easy for them to go there and get the kids uh, to sell to the organ harvesters and the traffickers. Um, Danny goes there several times a week to minister to these kids. This is a, uh, in conjunction with a Catholic church there. Uh, they build houses in the dump. Uh, but it's a very dangerous place. This is one of the mo more dangerous places we went and one of the more dangerous places in Guatemala, heavy drug trade and things like that. But Danny asked that, you know, we could show these pictures in our church and talk, but he didn't want them on social media for anybody to find their whereabouts uh, for the kids. Um, man, this right here was the test. It took some godly strength not to want to just get all these kids out of there. Oh, yeah, and. Yeah. A lot of these kids are eight years old, being raped by their father. Uh, they sat across from you, and you're told, you know, hey, this this girl's being raped by her dad. They're here for um, issues related to that, <clears throat> and he's standing at the door, and you can't do anything about it. It's uh, the, the the system over there is very corrupt. Um, go on to the next slide, Tyler. Um, that's Danny. Um, Danny Lopez and two of the girls from the uh, from the Tabitha house. Um, and slide on. Uh, again, it's the first day. That's just kind of how we were set up, if you can see uh, how quickly we were seeing people and how tightly we were working. Um, that's just one table when we would have people lined up with Dr. Yeager, and then they were just standing out in the rain, uh, come in and get their medicines. And, um, very thankful. Uh, they, they were very nice. The people we dealt with were, were very nice, uh, very grateful. They had never had this. I mean, they <clears throat> you don't have to have prescriptions over there like you do here, but a lot of them don't have the money or even the knowledge. The pharmacies are ran by drug dealers, basically, um, and so they can go to them and get what they think they need, but it's not necessarily the case. So they were very appreciative of that. And then I think the last slide is... Uh, that's just all of us that went um, on an active volcano in Guatemala. It's the most active they got. It's called, um, uh, what? I'm sorry, the name slipped my mind. But that was about 10,000 feet above sea level. I thought I was not going to get off that thing. And I think I see you <laughs> barely. Yeah, there was a Callie. I know she hates she missed this because she's very, if y'all hadn't met her, you know, she's very outspoken and likes to talk in front of public. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was humbling. Um, we did get to minister a little bit at, at sort of, we were there for the medical mission trip and we had to keep that way because it's what we told the government we were coming to do. But Danny and them did a lot of ministering to some of the people that he didn't know. <clears throat> and they actually did save two people um, in the bathroom. All right. Actually there. But, um, what was the, what was the uh, most intense uh, uh, case that you had there? What? I should have I asked you that before. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. But, um, I mean, you know, 1,100 people, I'm trying to... 
Well, that, well, that her, one lady said her, her foot was. was yeah, was that shape. that lady. They had. Um, she had diabetes, and like her family had cut her uh, fourth and fifth toe off. I don't exactly know how sterile it was, <laughs> so it was right off. There was uh, one lady I, I particularly saw that um, had really bad COPD, and she had walked like two miles to get to us, wow. and she could barely breathe. We actually went and checked on her a couple of days later. She was doing a little better. Um, Callie saw a lot of pregnant females, and young and old, and there was a couple of issues with that they had. I didn't particularly see them. Sure. Um, and then there was a, a mother and a daughter come in with HIV, and they were they were doing poorly. Mm. And you just can't. The the treatment's free over there for HIV, but it's not it's not even remotely like what you get over here. Um, and the dad had already died of HIV. The there was the girl, the oldest daughter, didn't have it. The five year old did, and the mother did. Mm. And they don't expect them to. Have much longer to live, and then they don't know what they're going to do with the girl. Danny and them are technically their legal guardian, but you can't adopt. If you're an American citizen, you can't adopt a Guatemalan child because of the corruption. Gotcha. Life changing, huh? Very much so. Man, yes, wow. Much so. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks for letting us know. Appreciate it. All right. Let's just pray for Danny. And what was his wife's name? Kim. Danny and Kim. Lord. We come to you right now. We thank you uh, for people like Danny and Kim that are willing to leave behind the comforts of, uh, of Alabama and the USA to, to serve you. We pray that the seeds that were sown um, as, as this medical missions team was there, that they would come to fruition. We pray that you would use their hands to be your hands and your arms to be their arms. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would continue to save people and continue to rescue people. Lord, I pray for every one of those little children that the government has no idea they even exist. You know they exist. God, we pray that you would protect them, that your hand would be on them, that, that all, all the evil that would try to come their way, that you would spring every trap that, that has been set for them. Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray that you would bring your justice and your peace and your grace. Oh, God, we thank you that um, you are, you're still calling people to make a difference to people hurting in this world and make us those people right where we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, man, good stuff. Well, we're going to uh, continue our series called The Struggle is Real. Let me read you the, uh, the theme passage that we're in for this whole series. It says this, a final word, Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power put on all God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemy. The struggle is real but it's not flesh and blood, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world. Do you know that those folks that are taking those kids in the dumps, there's a spirit behind that driving that. And that is, we can do something about that right here where we are. We can't go over there against these, uh, and, and against every evil, uh, against evil spirits in the heavenly places.
Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth. We talked about truth. The body armor of God's righteousness. We talked about righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith. Pastor BK talked about this to stop the fiery arts, fiery arts uh, arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. So we're kind of winding down to this, and today we come to the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. I, um, I, I'm going to go someplace a little different today. I hope you can follow my thinking. If not, just chalk it up to, uh, I don't know, a, a bad loss by my football team yesterday. So um, now, I don't think I have to tell you about the function of a helmet, do I? I, I, I actually had one coach. It was either seventh or eighth grade football that, that did find a new function for the helmet. I always thought the helmet was meant to protect what was in here, but he thought it made a nice little handle. And he would grab, <laughs> if you did something wrong on the field, he would grab you by the face mask. I thought face mask was to protect the face. But no, he thought, man, this is nice to grab. And then he didn't just hold it right there. Um, he would, you know, this and this, I mean, you just be like a limp, okay, coach, I got it. You know, you didn't, understand, didn't hear a thing he said because you were dazed and confused. No, 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 a helmet, Frank Myers. <laughs> he was not only our, our eighth grade uh, football coach, but he was our, he was our shop teacher too. So uh, I, he, would, he would grab us by the face mask and he would tell us some things that uh, I probably don't need to say here today. I guess a helmet may have other uses, but the most important thing it does is protect what's in here, what's in our head. And so we come to the helmet of salvation, and we're going to talk about kind of what's in here, the, the thoughts that are in our mind. So I want to talk about salvation for just a minute here to set the stage, and then we're, we're going to uh, dive into something I want to try today to, for us to look at salvation maybe a little diff differently than we have before. Because here, here's what I'm concerned about, and maybe you're way beyond this, and if, if, if that's the case, great. But I, um, I always think of things visually, and I, I, I thought about this, and I should have called Charlie to get some uh, a medical instrument I need later. But I, I, I think that people sometimes, in connection with salvation, I mean, kind of see it as kind of this magic wand thing that happens. It's like, it, it, you know, magic wand, you know, you, you wave it over the hat and say abracadabra and that rabbit either appears or disappears, whichever, whichever you're, uh, you want to do. And so magic wands are about, about, you know, getting something or making something go away and, and, and follow me here for a minute. I think, I think I've seen some Christians that kind of have this magic wand thinking about salvation. I mean, we pray a prayer, we fill out a card, whatever, and abracadabra, we get heaven and, and lose hell. Hell is out of the picture. And that's great. That's all good. And there you have it, magic wand salvation. But I think that we've kind of seriously shortchanged salvation if we think of it just that way. 
If we think of it just as a kind of a get into heaven, get out of hell, uh, free ticket. So instead of a magic wand, I, I, I want to talk about something else in regard to salvation. And it's perfect that we talk about uh, the, the medical missions thing. I want to talk about a scalpel. Because I think, I think salvation is a lot more like surgery than it is abracadabra. Okay, just, just follow with me on this. Uh, and it's not, here, here's, here's the, uh, I, I know that the worst news that you can, you can get when you get out of surgery is, hey, we're going to have to do more surgery. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you that this surgery that God does, this salvation surgery, isn't just a one-time thing and you're good to go. It is an ongoing surgery. It is something that he has to continue to do. So let me point you to a scripture that I think is, uh, says something really cool. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 2. It says, but thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. That's you. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we're a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we're, we're a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? Let me. I just want to zoom in on a, a cool little phrase there that, that uh, Paul uses here in this passage. Did you notice he says, to those of us that are being saved... In other words, it wasn't just something that happened here one time and it's done, but we're in the process every day of being saved. It's more like an ongoing surgery than it is an abracadabra thing. It's an interesting phrase. Those of us who are being saved, salvation is an ongoing process. So for me, here's the question that, that emerges out of that, if that's the case. When was the last time that I was on the operating table. Because, because from what I see, God has the scalpel in hand ready to operate, and it's up to us to crawl up on that operating table and say, I need some more. So that's the question that we ask today. So here's, here's what I, I think. I guess, I, I guess if I was going to uh, talk about exactly what kind of surgery that's kind of in my head. It would be um, what comes to mind is a transplant. Because when you do it, I'm sure Charlie didn't do a transplant, um, but, but uh, here, here's what happens with a transplant. You take out a diseased, malfunctioning organ and replace it with a healthy, functioning organ. And so here's what happens in, our, in this process of salvation. God continues to take the disease and the, the malfunctioning stuff out of our life. Aren't you glad for that, man? Aren't you glad that he cares to get the junk out of us? You know, I know that I'm not saying that we aren't fully saved at the moment of our conversion, but he continues to cut on us and to take the stuff out that's diseased, that is, um, that, that's, that's functioning at a level that, it, that, you know, hardly functioning or malfunctioning, and he, he wants to put something in us. Here, here's what salvation is, is about, in my opinion. 
It's about God pulling the world out of us and putting, putting his kingdom into us. Listen, it's about continually taking that junk out, stripping it layer by layer by layer and putting his kingdom in us. Jesus did not just come to forgive our sins. He came to, to make his kingdom live on the inside of us. You understand what that is? I mean, that is incredible. And part of that is the scriptures say that he's, he's renewing our mind. Here's what the Bible says. He wants to get in our heads and change the way that we think. We're talking about this helmet of salvation. And salvation changes everything about us and changes the way we think. Here's what it says in Romans 12. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But God, let God transform you. We, we talked about transplant. Transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Let me tell you, if you still think the way that you thought before you came to Jesus, you need to get back on the operating table, right? That's it. If you still think the same way that person that sits in the next cubicle does, that doesn't know God, that doesn't have a relationship with God, it's time to, it's time to man, change this up here, God. And it says this, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So God's looking for this uh, and working on this radical transformation in our lives. And the ground level, listen to me, the ground level for transformation in your life is the way that you think. It do, I don't know, I don't know how, you, how it's worked for you, but it doesn't do very much good coming up on the first year, January 1st, I'm going to do something different. I'm just going to... I'm just going to use the willpower. No, 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 no. That's not where transformation starts. It doesn't start by saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Transformation starts by how you think about it. Ground level is right between your ears. So uh, this entire series has been about spiritual warfare and fighting our inv invisible enemy. And I really believe that we will never be successful in this real struggle and still we, in, until we start to, to think correctly. So how, how do we learn to think right? How do we learn to let God reshape our thinking? I just want us to see that. I mean, here's what I saw in my head, and I couldn't think of a way to do it. Uh, I, I just saw God just popping the top off our head and reaching down in there and grabbing some stuff and putting some, you know what I'm saying? We're not going to try that today to anybody unless there's a willing, uh, EJ might be again. Okay. Um, I just, I just saw God just replacing the way we think with the way that he thinks. Man, that is whenever the, the, the Christian life becomes, um, I don't want to say easy, but you get it and you start to get in the flow of things because you, his thinking becomes your way of thinking. So uh, how do we learn to think right? Well, we learn that by how we learn anything else. We find somebody who, who's done it. I mean, if you, if, you want to, if you need to change the transmission in your car, probably not a good, good idea to call me. I want to talk to somebody who's done it, who knows it. And so, of course, to think right, we have to look at the only one who ever thought completely right, and his name was Jesus. And so I want to, I want to just, I, there's, there's so many directions I could go with this thinking right, 
And I mean, there are a zillion things that God wants, to think, wants us to think differently when he comes into our life. I'm just going to focus on one, one thing today. I hope I'm directed by God in this. So I'm talking about a change in thinking, not just a little tweak. I'm talking about a 180 degree change. And here is the change that God wants to make in our thinking. And that is this. I'm first when I'm last. I'm greatest when I'm least. See, that is completely opposite of the way that the world thinks. Completely opposite. See, the... uh, the first folks that Jesus tries to do surgery on um, are the guys that, that followed him, his disciples. Now, you'd think that after, after they spent a good, good deal of time with him, they would start to catch on. But no, when you read through the Gospels, the life of Jesus, you see these guys consistently scratching their heads after Jesus talks and says, now, what did he mean by that? You know, they, they, didn't, they didn't get it. And I've, I've, I've seen some folks that... that claim to have been following Jesus for a long time who just still don't get it because they just have refused to let their thinking go under the knife. And so I, w- I want to talk about this chapter in, in, uh, in the book of Mark that tells us about some events from the life of Jesus. And before we get in there, I, I just want to tell you about a few things that happened previous to what we're going to be reading. The first thing that happens in Mark chapter 9 is that Jesus invites three of his disciples Peter, James, and John, and they, they go up onto a mountain, and Jesus kind of pulls back the curtains on, on who he is. And here's what it says happened. It says, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. I just want you to think about this experience for just a minute. You go up with Jesus in jeans and a t-shirt or something similar, and he gets on the top of the mountain, all of a sudden he starts glowing. What? I mean, and if that's not enough, here comes Elijah and Moses, and, and is ha- they're hanging out with Jesus. What an experience. I mean, good night. And then they come down from the mountain, and Jesus cast out an evil spirit, um, and, then, and then this, this happens. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where he was, that he was there. For he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. You know what he wanted to teach them? How to think. How to think. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He'll be killed, but three days later he'll rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying. However, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. So, So let me just recap. They've seen Jesus in all his glory. I mean, they've seen Elijah and Moses, and then they've seen Jesus in all his power by casting out evil spirits who they couldn't cast out, by the way. And then Jesus has told them, I'm getting ready to die. And so the the disciples start to to have this, this side conversation, and Jesus notices it, and here's, here's what happens. 
after they arrived at Capernaum, so they're walking along the road between two cities. The disciples are maybe behind Jesus or something. They're having this discussion. It's getting kind of animated. And after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? Has anybody ever asked you a question that they already knew the answer to? Did your parents ever do that? They knew that you were guilty. They just wanted to see you, if you would fess up or not, right? Well, Jesus knew what was going on. It says this, but they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Let me remind you, they just saw Jesus shining, you know, Elijah and Moses. They just saw Jesus, all his power. He just told them he was going to die. And what are they talking about? Which of them was the greatest? What in the world? You guys are just busted. They were talking about which of, which of them was the best. I mean, they were talking about who, who was the man. Forget about the fact that Jesus was going to die. And so here's what Jesus does. He decides, I'm going to do a little surgery right now on how these guys think. On how these guys think. See, in their world... Their world taught them the same thing that our world does, that, that greatness is about being known. It's about being looked up to. It's about having the most Facebook friends and the most likes and the most Twitter, Twitter followers being highly thought of. It was all about popularity and prestige, and, of course, lots of money didn't hurt. And so what those disciples had been doing as they talked on that road was kind of presenting their resumes for greatness. Yeah, I know, but I've done this and I've got this. And I mean, how do you even do that? I just don't even understand that. Maybe they were name dropping or comparing accomplishments or bank accounts or whatever. I don't know. Maybe they went all the way back to uh, to school days and talked about transcripts. Whatever they were doing, what they, what they were undoubtedly doing is using the world's tape measure as a measure of their greatness or their success. And I'm going to tell you this, we can never use the world's tape measure for success. I said, we are not called to use the world's tape measure for our success. Never, ever. Because Jesus would be known as an abject failure by the world's tape measure for success. Because he died alone. Everybody abandoning him. Let me tell you. Scripture says that we're called to be transformed in our thinking. And so what Jesus does is he says, I'm going to redefine what greatness is for you. I don't care what it is for, that, for your neighbor. I don't care what it is for, for your buddies at work. I don't care what, what she says about greatness. What I want to do is I want to show you what greatness is. And so it says he did this. He sat down called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. That's, that's not what the world says. And so Jesus, he, you know, as he often did, he would, he would take objects or things, visuals, and it says this, then he put a little child among them, taking the child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. And so Jesus, in that moment, says greatness is not 
about a lot. Greatness is about a little. A little. It's not about, you know, typically it's, it's about in the world a lot of notoriety, a lot of attention, a lot of talent, a lot of money. But Jesus says greatness is just the opposite. Jesus says greatness is found in the little. That's, that's completely opposite. I mean, what are you talking about, Pastor Les? It's not who you know or who knows you. Greatness is in who you notice, in who you notice. Listen to me. Kids are easy to overlook, and we've probably all been guilty at times of just overlooking kids and saying, you know, you need to be seen and not heard. And so Jesus takes this little kid and says, listen, whenever you do something for this one right here, that other people may overlook and may, you know, pass over, then you are welcoming me. You're doing something to me. He said it in a similar way, in another passage, it says, whenever you do it to the least of those around you, you've done it unto me. And so Jesus says, it's not about a lot, greatness, success, notoriety. It's not about having a lot. It's about doing the little things and not overlooking the little things. That's where true greatness is, where it really lies. Here's, as I, as I read over the life of Jesus in the Gospels, it seems to me that the hallmark of Jesus' life was noticing those who nobody else did. Have you, have you seen that? There's this guy, let me just give you a couple of, there's this guy, his name is Bartimaeus, he's a blind guy. And here's what the scriptures say, that Jesus showed up in Bartimaeus' town. And apparently Bartimaeus had a little, uh, a little set up right on the edge of town to beg for money. And as Jesus is headed out of town, they, Bartimaeus catches wind of the fact that Jesus is coming his way. And he's excited about it. And he says, hey, Jesus. And his, his exact words were, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you know what everybody said to him? Shut up. Be quiet. This Jesus, he's got more important stuff to do. He's, in fact, Scripture says that he's surrounded by a massive crowd. He's got a lot. And the world would look at him, look at Jesus and say, that's the reason he's so great. Because he has a lot. He has a lot of people listening to him, a lot of people looking to him. And there's this little guy named Bartimaeus over here that has nothing. Just a little guy that everybody ignores. Everybody's saying, shut up, man. We ignore you every day. Just be quiet. Jesus doesn't want to deal with you. And he keeps yelling louder and louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And here's what happens. Scripture says that Jesus stopped and everybody else is telling him, go away. And what does Jesus say? Just the opposite. Come here. Come here. Jesus noticed people that everybody else overlooked. And that is what made Jesus great. I'll tell you another. There was a, there's a story in the scriptures about this, this nondescript paralytic of 38 years. He, uh, we don't know his name, but he says to Jesus, I have no one. 
I have no one. Uh, the angel would come every once in a while and stir the waters. Whoever was in the water first got healed. But Jesus came along, and, and, and this guy says, man, I have nobody. And Jesus says, I, you've got me. Man, this guy, I love what Jesus said to this guy. He said, hey, I'm telling you to take up your mat and walk. Take up your sleeping, sleeping bag and walk. In other words, this is the last day that you'll spend here. That's the kind of person that Jesus was. That's what made him great. It wasn't just him teaching to the multitudes and everybody, oh, I can't believe it. What made Jesus great was, and what made him a success was that he, he looked and noticed and cared for people that nobody else noticed. What about, what about one other incident, incident? Maybe you remember, again, a crowd is following Jesus, and they're on their way to a very important person's house, a guy named Jairus. He was, he was a leader of the synagogue, the church of that day. His daughter was near death, and Jesus is, is, is on, on his way to Jairus' house, and there's this huge crowd following him following him again. And you would think, well, that's, that's, that means he was successful. No, no, no. That's what made him. No, it wasn't the crowds. It was how he was willing to stop for people that nobody else would stop for. And so he's on his way. And all of a sudden he says, man, something happened. There was power that left my, left me. And he looked around and there's this lady at his feet that had been bleeding for 12 years. I mean, here's what I would say. You've got, and, and I'm sure the disciples were thinking, you've got more important things to do, man. If you can get to Jairus' house and heal his daughter, then, man, imagine what we can post on Facebook about that. I mean, Jairus has like a million friends on Facebook. Everybody will see it. You know, marketing miracles just kind of stinks in my opinion. But anyway, I don't But you could be huge. I mean, you already are, but you could be so big if you just go, come on, we don't have time to stop for this little lady that nobody cares about. And Jesus stopped and talked to this lady and healed this lady. I'm going to tell you that that's what made Jesus so great. And that is what I believe that we are called to make the mark uh, Make it, make it a part of our lives that we, listen, that we notice people that nobody else notices, that we stop for people that nobody else stops for, that we, listen, that we get involved in the lives of people that everybody else says, I don't want to be involved. Let me tell you, that's where greatness comes from. It's not about any of the things the world tells us, no, it's what Jesus says, that I'm first when I'm last, that I'm greatest when I'm least, that I have the most when I'm serving all. It's what Jesus did. What about us? We doing that. Here's what salvation is meant to do. It's meant to change the way that we think. And this is just one example of hundreds, thousands. So I want to go full circle all the way back to where we started. I'm going to try to tie this together. Because we've been talking about this, this struggle, this, 
this spiritual warfare, and you think, man, we've gotten so far from spiritual warfare. Where, where are you going, Pastor Les? Well, let me give you a description of Jesus, of Jesus' ministry. Here's what it says in Acts 10, 38. This, this kind of encapsulates what, what Jesus did in his life, and it says this, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good, and healing all who were oppressed of the devil by the devil, for God was with him. I want to tell you, this is a description of spiritual warfare. Because there is no greater spiritual warfare than us reaching out to somebody who has nobody, who feels forgotten, who feels overlooked, and snatching them up. Scripture says that Jesus, I mean, just by going around and doing good, he was doing spiritual warfare. Healing, let me tell you, do you know, here's, here's what I believe, what I found in light of incidents, you know, the incident in Vegas and, and, and elsewhere, here's what I believe. That I mean, I'm I'm all for physical healing, and I, let's do it. I, I'm I'm down with that. But here's what I've found is the ultimate healing power in for everything, and that is the power of love. Because when Jesus reached down and said, or or looked at Bartimaeus and said, "Come to me," he said he was saying, "Man." There's a place for you in my kingdom. I love you. When he looked down at that woman who had been bleeding, he was showing her love. Let me tell you, I know sometimes we think, well, what can I do? I mean, I, I'm just, I just don't have anything. Let me tell you what you can do. You can do good, and you can heal through acts of love and kindness and nothing else. God is asking us to change the way that we think. Because salvation isn't just so I can feel good. And so I can feel good about the fact that I'm not going to hell and that I'm going to get to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. That's all good. But salvation is about so much more than just you feeling good. It's about you passing along what you have experienced. We're being saved. Being saved. So listen to this. When Jesus got ready, to do the greatest spiritual warfare in the history of our world when he got ready to pay for our salvation and for our redemption, for our freedom from sin. Here's what it says that he did in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. I'm first when I'm last. That's what God wants to get in our minds. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Man, that's hard to give up. You know, that rule in the world stuff. I mean, that's kind of, it's kind of cool when you can do what. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, a servant, and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He hum when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. When I'm first, when I'm last is when I'm first. So here's what it says. Therefore, in other words, because he was willing to do all of that, and when we're willing to give up our rights, 
and what we think is, is ours, here's, what, here's what, how God responds to Jesus. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm first when I'm willing to become last. When I refuse to stick up for me and my rights, whenever I say, listen, I'm going to reach out to people who have it far worse than me, I just want you to know, and Charlie can tell us this for sure, having been to a, to a third world country, I, I guess that would be considered third world, I don't know. But there are folks that have it a lot worse than us, am I right, Charlie? There are people that are living in dumps. They're, you know, we all tend to have a tendency to think we have it bad, don't we? I mean, let's just be honest. We've got it pretty good. There are people every day in our life that feel overlooked, that feel like, man, they have been forgotten, and God calls us to remember them and to show them that he remembers them because we're only great in the kingdom when we're willing to be nothing and be the servant of all. And that thinking is completely counter-cultural right now. The helmet of salvation is not just meant for us to celebrate that we're getting to heaven and we've avoided hell. hell. The helmet of salvation is for God to keep operating on us. And as he operates on us, then we share what we've experienced with other people. And especially to those who think they've got nothing. That's the kind of thinking that God calls great.